Ken, it's good to be here. What a privilege. What a privilege to worship God with His people. And uh, we're going to do something a little bit different this week. Now, we're going to be in the Word of God, but we're going to kind of veer off from the text, but not really. Uh, We ordinarily uh, start off with uh, where I left off last week, which would have been verse 50. And what we're going to do, as in Matthew 27, what we're going to do today is, as we have looked at what has happened on the cross in the narrative, and then uh, we got some details out of that, uh, what happened at the cross, there were people there just railing at Christ, uh, giving Him verbal abuses. Uh, You have other things going on there. Uh, Of course, Christ is having this terrible, horrible, physical agony and His pain. And we saw in the text last week where He uh, said, Father, or my God, my God, why have You forsaken me? And when we think of that, we have to think of His separation there at that moment. And that's when He took on the sin of His elect ones. He took our sin at that time, bore it. And it was a dark time. It says there that the sun was darkened. And that was a visible object lesson for everybody there and all across the world. It was probably dark throughout the universe because that was saying that God was making a judgment. God made a judgment for our sin. For the ones He chose, He paid the penalty. It was a penal substitutionary atonement. Now we kind of finished our message last week with that thought. And that's where the doctrine comes in, or theology. So don't turn us off here, because this is the part that explains what was going on. As we look in the New Testament and it's built up by the Apostle Paul and throughout the epistles, we see an atonement. There are certain words we're going to use today that I think a lot of people who would be teaching preachers would say, don't use those big words. It'll just make the people stumble. But you know what? I have much more confidence in my people because they know those words. And if you don't, you're willing to learn. Those words are dear and important to the church. They have been, especially since the last 500 years during the Reformation. Uh, So it is good to think of those words. Penal, substitutionary atonement. That's the very heart of the gospel. It's the very heart of what was going on historically when Jesus died on that cross. And we get some details. We don't get everything there, but we definitely get that story. And then it's built up through uh, the rest of uh, the epistles. Uh, So I want to spend one more week on this topic of Jesus' death because it's the core. It's the heart. It's what the Gospel is about. I mean, this is incredible doctrinal and expositionally here as we saw out of the text. Uh, We want to build on that. And I think of uh, um, our dear brother here, Evan, going to seminary and... uh, I'm sure you've heard these words, but you'll get a heavy dose of these words continually from here on out uh, when we talk about uh, this uh, atonement and all of the theological terms that come with this. The Old Testament background and then the New Testament shows the depth of that atonement. And so what we're going to do today is actually answer the question of 
who did Jesus actually die for? And this would be controversial today. Bins, uh, or since, I don't know, is there such a word as bins, being? Uh, is there? Okay, good. Coming from a lawyer term, right? <laughs> um, so, if, if we were to look back at historically, we'll see that this definite atonement is something that is, has been taught and believed. And it goes all the way back to Augustine. And it goes all the way back to Pauline and also Christ himself. The definite atonement is where he accomplished what he came out to do. He didn't semi-accomplish it or get some of it done and leave the rest for the other people, for the people to respond to. It, uh, we ask, who did Jesus die for? When Jesus died on the cross, we died with him somehow. And when we died with him, we know that certain things happened that took an effect at that time. And then in time and history, we believed on him. Somewhere down the road, 2,000 years later, we believed. And of course, we ask, well, why did we believe? And we'll get to uh, a lot of that, uh, those issues. But what I am set out to prove is something that most of the church today has strayed away from, gotten away from. Uh, if you look at the Presbyterian church, the Congregational church, the in, all the independents that branched off the Reformation, they all believed this. And then as it extended through the time of uh, John Owen, the Puritans taught this, the 1600s. And the 1700s, the great Puritan Jonathan Edwards definitely taught the definite atonement, particular redemption, limited atonement. Um, all the way right on into the 1800s with the great preacher Charles Spurgeon who taught the definite, limited, particular atonement. And those are dear doctrines. And we go right into today. We're not odd, folks. We are standing on Scripture. We have people like John MacArthur who teach definite atonement. R.C. Sproul. Alistair Begg. Um, some of your other favorite ones. Um, James Montgomery Boyce. Uh, we can just... John Piper. So we're not out there alone teaching something that's really odd. We're teaching something that is biblical. Plus, it is historical. And it's nice to know we go along with some of those men. Because I can't think of hardly any names, great names, back in the 15, 16, 1700s, 1800s, except people who were weak in their theology. You can bring up some names, but you'll, you'll find out the rest of their doctrine is messed up in a lot of other areas. So that's why I say this is very important. I didn't grow up on it, and I don't think anybody here grew up on the definite atonement. But it has to be taught if you believe in the depravity of man, if you believe in election, which are biblical terms. So what we're going to start off with is this first term I have here, forgiveness. Coming from and looking at God, we have to ask, okay, forget, how is it possible for God to forgive if He's a holy God? If he's a just God and he demands perfection, how can he forgive me? Is forgiveness important to you guys? As we go along through this doctrine, what we're going to do is pull out of this. Any good pastor should be able to take doctrine and then to apply it. We should feel and realize the forgiveness that he has given. And it should make us burst out in joy. That's how we respond 
Because we've been forgiven. So this is not just doctrinal for the head. John Calvin said he never taught just to make it to go to the head. It was meant to go to the heart. And that's what we want, right? So uh, it's a hard issue, this forgiveness. Here's what Carnegie Simpson said. Forgiveness is to man the plainest of duties. To God, is the, it is the profoundest of problems. Now, the reason he says is, is that if, if we look at it from our angle, God, how can he do that? He's infinitely holy. He's infinitely just. Uh, we know that we are to forgive. That's an automatic. All people know that. Even non-Christians know they're supposed to forgive people. It's not a natural thing to do, but they know they're supposed to do it, right? And they do it sometimes. Sometimes we do it, but we know we're commanded. But it's different between us forgiving other people and God forgiving a race of people, humankind, who are so depraved and evil and wicked. (laughs) I used to preach every word there, right? Why would He do that? How can God do that? We're commanded to forgive, but does He do it? Well, He demands perfection. And we know that we don't go up to that standard. Our own standards, we could do pretty good, couldn't we? But we know we fall short of that. Does He overlook sin then and just dismiss it? Of course not. And uh, we've, we've talked about this many times. It, it's going to come to something more and people will say, but God is love. And He certainly is. But His love is holy. See, all these attributes, they're holy. They're set apart. Anselm, who was a um, theologian back around the 11th century, and he wrote a tremendous book on the atonement. And it's called Cur Deus Homo. And he was stating this, if anybody imagines that God can simply forgive us as we forgive others, that person has not yet considered the seriousness of sin or what a heavy weight sin is. They don't know how huge and serious it is. Uh, Anselm also said sin was refined as not rendering to God what is due. You like that? Sin is not rendering to, to God what is due. That being submitting our entire will to Him. Coming from the flesh, can we do that? No. In the Spirit, yes, we are to desire to do that. We sing that little song, you know, consecrated to Him. You know, take my life, let it be, right? I give it all to you. It's yours. It's yours. You do what you want. Rendering to God what is due. But a natural man can't do that. So the gravity of sin, it's immense. It's overwhelming when you understand the biblical language. When you see certain words that come up in the Greek and the Hebrew, and they just stand out, and they make you fall on the floor in a sense, in that you get a full orb view of what sin is. Old Testament, New, New Testament. New Testament word is hamartia, and we've all heard that. It means to miss the mark, to miss that standard, falling short of it. Another word is adakia. And that means no righteousness. Ah being the negative. Dakia means righteousness. No righteousness. It means iniquity. It means unrighteous. That's the way a natural man is. Another word is panaria. And that word means to be evil. It means to be evil of a vicious kind. Whoa. This is the heavy weight of sin. There's another word is parabasis. And it means to trespass. It means to transgress, to go over the line when you know what the line is. 
So we turn to Psalm 51.4. David knew the weight of his sin. And he confessed it in Psalm 51. And he says in verse 4, Against you, he's speaking to God here, You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, he committed murder. So he committed sin against that one individual. He committed uh, adultery. So that was sin against Bathsheba. And it was like he lied. I mean, you can continue to see all those sins. And his whole family affected everybody. But he says, I've sinned against you only, God. Because that's really where it finally boils down to. But he didn't admit it to God until almost a year later. He didn't confess it. This confession came because Nathan the prophet had to come to him and said, you are the man who committed that sin. Now, does that mean David uh, is going to go to hell? No. David committed murder, committed adultery. And he's a man after God's own heart. But this shows the beauty of God's grace. See how sinful that is? You can say, well, you can compartmentalize sin and say, well, listen, there's certain sin I just can't believe that anybody could get in there for. Murder is one of them, right? What sin is it that Christ didn't die for, right? That's pretty uh, much of a model, a, a great characteristic. Um, Romans 8, verse 7 and of course, I cover this stuff a lot, so this is probably old hat, but it's always good to be reminded. Romans 8, 7, good doctrinal issue here. We're free from indwelling sin, but then he talks about the carnal. And he says in uh, uh, verse 7, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. Look at that. It's not subject to the law, nor indeed can be. It has no power, has no strength, the carnal mind, which is the flesh, which is a man before Christ, cannot do it. He can't come to Christ. And he says in verse 8, So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They are unable. Where does that put one? Well, I, they still must, they, they've got to make a decision, right? Now, you guys know better. That word has been tossed around in the last 150 years, make a decision for Christ. I guess you could say that in a way, if you want to loosely say that. It's really not a biblical term. Uh, but yeah, we do say yes, but why do we say yes? That's always the question. You know, Why do we? Because we cannot do it. So it has to be all from God. Salvation is of God, isn't it? That's what we're really hitting on. Okay, we're, we're first starting with this whole depravity, and we know this. Is, Dennis, go on. We've heard this over and over. Is man responsible for it, though? Yeah, yeah, he is. He's responsible for every sin. And matter of fact, he gives commands to everybody to repent, to all. That's where the hyper-Calvinists had a problem. They said, well, how can he do that? He can't command people that are unbelievers to do what he tells them to do. But he does. And uh, that was a cry of a reformation too. And that's a part of this atonement that we're talking about, this uh, limited atonement. Deuteronomy 30, 30 verse 15 is saying, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And see, he puts it out there and says, I've said it before you. Now, which one are you going to choose? And so, one coming from a non-Calvinist view would use that verse. Looks like a pretty good verse to use, doesn't it? And we move on in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30, verse 20. That you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey His voice, and that you may cling to Him, for He is your life. And the verse before that, he just said, choose life. So that sounds like choosing salvation. 
But what he's setting forth is the law. And the law has one, has a few elements in it that to do, but the basic one is to drive men to Christ. They have to see that they can't do it. And that's what Romans 8 was saying. The Bible never conflicts itself, so we have to take it that way. Joshua twenty four fifteen. I think there, choose you this day. So people will use that passage much of the time. And they'll say, uh, Joshua says, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, the gods of the Amorites. So choose you this day. But how are they going to choose unless God comes in? Unless he works that covenant work that he later on expounds upon. So it has to be his people that do that. So they're responsible. In John 6.44, we get an explanation here in the New Testament. And uh, this is a heavy verse. And it says, let me find my chapter. If I, uh, I'm in Romans, see? Thinking one track here. It said John 6.44, right? You guys already have it. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nobody can come to Christ unless he is drawn. The Father draws him. He's given to Christ. Okay, now, we, what we've established, the gravity of sin, we've seen that there is responsibility of mankind. And by the way, if you're, if you're in John 6.44, if you go back to John 5.20, he said this only in, in 6.44, after he said, you will refuse to come to me. Look at this in John 5.40, just the chapter before. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. They're not willing. It's not in their will. It's not their free will. And John 1 has already told us that it is not of the will of the flesh nor the will of man that we be born again. But it is the will of God. Fascinating, huh? So he's the one that has to do all that. That's how we can come to Christ. So there's a guilt. If you have responsibility, then there's a guilt. We stand guilty before this great God. We're all liable we're liable to bear the penalty of our wrongdoing. I'm setting this all up, and I'm going to try to, to get to what our question is, is what was accomplished at the cross? Did it make salvation just possible, or was it finished? Okay, we have, um, we have Romans 3, right? I don't. Okay, 19 and 20. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become, what? Guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's the good thing about the law. It tells us that we're sin, and then we come to, if, it's, if we're drawn to him, we'll come with empty hands, offering ourselves to him as he draws us. Okay, so there is the gravity of sin, there is the responsibility of sin, there is the guilt of sin as we stand before this holy God who is a God of wrath, and all those things are right that were talked about, and we know that He is holy, He's just, He's righteous. We could look up a lot of those passages, how great God is in His holiness. For lack of time, I'm going to move on. He says in Deuteronomy 7, or Matthew 7.23, they come bringing their own works and I did this and I did that. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Okay? Leon Morris defines God, God's wrath as a personal divine revulsion to evil and his personal vigorous 
opposition to it. His anger is pure. His anger is untaminated. He has a holy, righteous anger that's always perfect. It's not like our anger, but it's a perfect anger. And so therefore, we've gotten up to where we're responsible and we're guilty and God is wrathful. And if we stopped right there, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? So now we get into the satisfaction. Number two, who is satisfied? A lot of people would say Satan. God satisfied Satan in that he, he, was, he died on the cross. And so now, um, that's not really the issue, is it? How about the law? Well, he definitely satisfied the law because in Galatians chapter 3, Verse 10 through 13. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. So there, that's where we're at so far. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law on the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Here's where we're getting into good news now. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. And here we go. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And I want you to catch that because we're going to be using that later on. Has redeemed us. Who are the us? If they have been bought and paid for. Think about that. That's what redeemed means. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, as your substitution, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ took our curse. He was cursed without sin, and then we put our sin on Him as He took it. Jesus' obedience was passive at the cross, they say, the reformers do. And in another sense, it was active. But there's an active obedience, and that was His perfect life. And then as he committed himself to the Father and then to the ones who arrested him and then crucified him and all the things that they did to him. He submitted to the law and that would be called active obedience. So, was the law satisfied? Yeah. He came to fulfill the law. Number two, God's honor and God's justice was satisfied. In an Anselm's book, Cur Deus Homo, which is a great book on the atonement, and there's one other book that I highly recommend, and it's probably, and I would say, the best work on the atonement as far as I know. It's called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owen, written back in the 1600s. The great Puritan, nobody I don't think has matched that since. A great book, and it deals with all of these passages that we're going to get today, plus way more. It's exhaustive on that subject. Remember, I've told you in the last couple of weeks that the atonement is getting attacked by the evangelical realm of the day. And they don't like the idea of penalty. They don't like the idea of substitution. They don't like the idea of atonement. Kid you not. Let's just take the gospel out. Why do they even bother to meet? God satisfied Himself. Well, in Cur Deus Homo, in this Anselm, he is Latin, the cross was satisfaction of God's offended honor. And then also, God is satisfied with Himself. There's a transcendent love here that's working. His love works in this while He's righteous. While He's holy, His love is holy. It's not enough to satisfy the law. It's not enough just to satisfy His honor. He must satisfy Himself. 
The cross is the event, I think John Stott said this, in which God makes known His holiness and love simultaneously in one event. His wrath, His love. His holiness, His love. Right at the cross, you see the attributes. His love and holiness are infinite. And like our sins would be infinite, that's why people who do not have faith in Christ will pay for their sins infinitely. But our sins have been paid for infinitely as if trusted in Him. Now, number three, we go to substitution atonement. And, and we'll get to the more depth of this when we get to number five. This is the essence of the atonement, the substitution. The Old Testament sacrifices. Go back to the Old Testament just for a moment. Go to Leviticus 17.11. We're in the law. And the law is presented to Moses and he presents it to the people and he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make, what? Atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. He was going to use animal sacrifices to picture what was going to come 1,500 years later. They didn't have the cross at that time, but they had building blocks. And so every day, all day long, they had sacrifices. And so they offered up animals. The blood was offered in uh, at uh, the, the tabernacle. And we know about that. Of course, the Day of Atonement. Um, the blood went into the Holy of Holies, and that represented for the... Uh, the blood was for the priest and then all the people that he was offering for. And then also... There is the Passover, where again you have the bloodshed. Always has to be bloodshed for that sacrifice in, in that sense. Now, there were sacrifices that weren't bloody, but most of them were. And it was all leading up to the ultimate sacrifice, which is the sacrifice. The animals never took away the sin. Jesus Christ on the cross did. He took the past sins away from the ones who were His. And He took the future sins of the people that are His, which is us. And that's how He, how he does that. Um, so... Old Testament sacrifices. The fulfilling substitute is seen in Ephesians 5.2. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us. He gave Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Did you catch that? His sacrifice was an aroma to God. It was a picture of what the animal sacrifices were as, as uh, they were burnt. And the aroma went up to God, representing that He was satisfied and pleased with that. And He was satisfied. And that's what, what is key here. Uh, he gave Himself up for a fragrant aroma. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is one of those passages that deals with the heart of where we're at. For He made Him who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Took that sin on. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So there He is. There He is paying for it. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He gave us His righteousness. That's the imputed, imputation. He imputed His righteousness to us. Uh, our account was taken. Now, we're on number four already. Are we doing okay? Okay. We're moving on. We're working towards number five. Well, who did Christ die for? Number four, we get the salvation of sinners. Now, there are images of salvation in the Scripture. 
And last week we talked about these four images. I'm going to expound on them just a little bit further. Number one is propitiation. Big word. And I know that some translations have taken that word out and have put like expiation sometimes or put another word in there that is not as seemingly harsh. But when you say propitiation, it makes people really nervous. So much that they do not preach about it today or teach about it. Propitiation. Do you hear that word very much? If you're hearing the right people, you do. If you're reading the right books, you'll see it all over the place. It's near and dear to us. We talk about it all the time. It's not foreign to you guys. But the word is helosmos. Helosmos. This means to appease or to satisfy the wrath, and I'm going to say this for starters, of a god. Okay, the pagans had this idea, and our idea is going to go much deeper and much better than that, but this was their little best thing they could do. They had all sorts of gods, and none was uh, higher than another. They just had different gods, and they had to have different gods to offer up things. When things were going wrong, they would even offer up their sons and daughters. You know, you know in the Old Testament we see that uh, offering up to Molech, for instance. And that was how they were going to um, get their sins taken away. They had to appease this God. If there was no rain for all summer long, haven't had it all spring and all summer long, they might have to do a big sacrifice to appease their gods. Now, we know that that is idolatry, it's wrong, uh, and I'm sure that God controlled the weather however He wanted. But now what we're doing here is taking that word propitiation and we're saying God was satisfied. His wrath is taken away from the ones that He died for at the cross. He no longer has the wrath for them. So we go to Romans 3, 24, 25, and we see that word pop up. Being justified freely. These are great words, aren't they? By His grace, through the redemption, that's a buying out of, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a what? Propitiation. A satisfaction. By His blood. Christ's blood. That's kind of relating back to the Jews who would think of the blood in the Old Testament, the sacrifices, but it's His blood. Through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed until he died and those sins for his were then taken care of. Um, if you look in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's talking to believers here. And he himself, Christ, here's our word, is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Uh-oh. Now, we've got a problem here. It says, but also for the whole world. Well, does that mean everybody uh, that's ever been born in the world? Is that, what it, is that what it means? If it is, then we're universalists and we're gonna, all going to go to heaven whether you believe in Jesus or not. What he's saying here, as John is writing to these local people, he's saying Jews, Gentiles from every tribe, nation, tongue is going to be drawing out of for the whole world, the cosmos, for all those people that are His. Otherwise, it can't make sense. 
If he does it for the whole world, then why do we even have to, why do we bother to come to church? You're saved whether you want to or not. You're going to be in there. He died for all the world. Here he says that he, he, does, he makes a propitiation. God was satisfied with who Christ died for. Um, chapter 4, verse 10, 1 John. In this is love, not that we loved God. Did you catch that? It wasn't because we loved God. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the what? The propitiation. For what? For our sins. If it was for anybody else, like unbelievers, then He satisfied God and they get to get in too, don't they? Do you see why propitiation is so important? Do you see why... Many people like to get away from that word. They won't be in uh, their vocabulary. But it's very key. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. One more on this, on this word, helasmos, or propitiation. I'm not trying to say something on my own opinion. I'm just looking at verses that are speaking very clearly about this. Hebrews 2, 17. I think it exalts God's glory in such a higher way than the cheap gospel that is being put out. So much today. 2.17 Therefore in all things He had to be made like His brethren. Talking about Jesus. That He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To, to why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is able to aid those who are tempted. There, what he's saying is Jesus died on the cross. He went through much suffering. He's able to come to us. And here's a little application just for us. When you feel tempted, or when you have been tempted, you, let's say you failed. At the same time, we see that, and, and also in other places, that he's the high priest here in Hebrews. He is ever living to make intercession for us, even when we fail. Even when we don't fail and we've been tempted. Just remember him. That's the best thing to do when you are tempted. Look at Christ and remember what he went through. Or a great test, suffering, whatever. You can put that into your life right now today, can't you? You can look at what he did and what he went through. And when you see that, you can't even compare to the physical sufferings he went through, let alone that spiritual suffering he went through when it became dark on the cross for those three hours. Wow, when you think of that, all of a sudden you go... But anyway, there is the idea of propitiation. God is satisfied. Another word is redemption. We've, we've been seeing that word all over. The word, uh, much of the time, is lutrao, lu, loosen. You can think of it that way. It means to loosen, to buy out. To buy out of the marketplace. It's to loosen one out of the marketplace. It's a marketplace term. You can say, well, these are picture words that we're using. These are images of salvation. How can you think of it? New Testament uses these four. One of them is what? What did we just see? We saw temple sacrifices. We saw the temple courts. And in here in redemption, what do we see? We see the marketplace. So we've gone to the temple. Now we go to the marketplace. This is a good way to remember this, isn't it? Propitiation. Redemption. Uh, he came to pay a ransom for the many. Mark 10.45. In First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. I'm going through these rather rapidly because we have to get number five. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. 
all his people. They were paid for. First Peter 1, 18 and 19. And I know when you see some of those other words for all, that people are going to use that and say, did you see that? He, he, he died and paid for all. Well, there, that's universalism. That is not uh, accepted in Christianity. That's cultish. First Peter 1, 18 and 19. And so most Christians, I think all Christians, do not, uh, never believe in universalism. You know, if you're a Christian, you cannot believe in some other way. Knowing that you were not redeemed, there's our word, lutrao, with corruptible things, like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. It was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, for through him, for through Christ. You believe in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So we have the redemption thought. In Ephesians 1.7, he talks about redemption. Again, the blood and, and what was done. He bought us. It was paid for. That's dear. So the marketplace, what did we do before? The, the temple. How about the next word? Justification. This is a courtroom term. And it means to be declared righteous. In and of ourselves, we're not. But he put his righteousness on us and we're declared righteous. The, the Catholicism says, no, you can be. He actually put, you actually have his righteousness. You have your own righteousness. And so you can do pretty good for a while. Matter of fact, you're doing great along with him. And they didn't use the word imputation. That you, they used another word. And it's dealing with kind of your own. You can kind of help out God for what he did. And now it's up to you. Man-centered. That's how a lot of that came back to the... Body of Christ. The Reformation was all about this, what we're talking about. You want to be in the Reformation or do you want to be with where the Catholics believe at the point of salvation? Reconciliation is another one. Okay, propitiation, what is that? Temple. Um, redemption, where's that? Marketplace. Justification, that's in the courtroom. Law, you've been declared righteous by the judge. The fourth one is this, reconciliation. What's reconciliation? Takes you into the home. Where you have family, you have friends, you've had a disagreement, and uh, somebody asks for forgiveness, they forgive, and now you have a reconciliation. So we've gone from the temple to the marketplace to the courtroom to home. We have all those are great pictures that Jesus uh, Jesus' words are about. Uh, Paul really expands upon that, doesn't he? That's what was happening at the cross when he died, and it got dark. And he took on the sin. All of these things were happening. We haven't been justified yet if we haven't trusted in Christ. When we, when we have trusted in Christ, then we're declared righteous. But all those things took place. We're justified because of his raising up from the dead, right? And, of course, belief is such a key element there um, to restore a relationship with what the reconciliation. Romans 5, 9 through 11. I'm going to move on to the fifth one. Whom did Christ die for? This is the key question. In whose place did he substitute for? Whose place did he substitute for every man, woman, child who's ever been born in the world? Or did he substitute? Did he substitute for Hitler, Stalin, Lenin? Did he substitute for some of the evil people of our time? Did he substitute for them? Well, he might have if they trusted in him, but I don't see 
that in Hitler. If he did substitute for them and the price was paid, what else has to be done? Does that mean Hitler goes to heaven? Is that right? Well, if you take this logical, the way that people take it, if he died for everybody, then he's going to go in there. When the word, the word little f-o-r is used in the New Testament, it means to be in the place of. It means to substitute, to take our place. Was it all men or was it the elect? All evangelicals, I want you to get this, believe in limited atonement. Well, I know a lot of people that don't. Yeah, they do. They believe in Christ. The limiting is not the question. And the reason I use this limiting in in, uh, the uh, acronym uh, TULIP came from basically Holland, you know, in retort back to the Arminians, Arminius, and then his people later had a convention and they said, no, it's not limited atonement. It's not even depravity. We don't believe in total depravity. We don't believe in election. We don't believe in limited atonement. We don't believe in an irresistible grace. And we do not believe in perseverance of the saints. They put those up. And so the Synod of Dort, 16, 19, 18, and 19, met together. They convened, looked at all the scriptures that we're looking at, and they said, you know what? We have to stick to what we have believed, biblically and historically. And they didn't go with what this was challenged by uh, Arminius and his people. And so you can say, well, how do they limit? How do the Arminians limit? They say, well, it was for all people. Well, they limit it in its efficacy. That means it wasn't efficient for most people. Jesus died for them. Step back and say, now it's up to you. You have to accept the gift. You have to believe in me. So he died for everybody, but it really wasn't too efficient. It was only to the, uh, only a remnant's going to believe, and so the Armenian has to believe that, don't they? Take, just taking logical thoughts on this, the Calvinist, on the other hand, limit it another way, and it's by extent. The bridge goes all the way over, but it's very narrow. But it does contact Christ. The bridge for the Arminians goes out halfway over because it doesn't extend all the way and then that's it. It's very wide because it takes in everybody but not all are going to get there. Do you see what's happening? That's a mental picture if you can draw that up and starts making some sense. Scripture is what's important but the question would be is whether it's limited in, in its efficacy or is it limited in its extent. We believe that it's limited in its extent. Will a just God punish the same sins twice? If you're an Arminian, you'd almost have to say, and you'd have to say, yes. Jesus died for everybody's sins, and now if that person doesn't accept, then they're going to have to pay for their sins in hell forever. You know what that is? That's double jeopardy. You know what that is? That's not legal. You can't do that in the courts. You know what that is to God? It's illegal. He can't do that. God cannot do double jeopardy. That would be unjust. He propitiated His wrath toward me. Remember those verses that we looked at? Propitiation? He was satisfied. Nothing else has to be done. Jesus, what was one of His last words? It is finished. Teleos. Completed. Fulfilled. It's done. It's not going to rely upon you. The Catholic Church said... Well, he did that. Yes, we believe in the cross, 
But we have to do this. And that is synergism. We work with God for our salvation. You've seen a lot of the evangelical or uh, Protestant churches go back to that belief again. Seth, what did he do? Was he angry at me? Yeah. Is he angry at me now? No. The wrath has been satisfied. Did actually it happen? Did he actually redeem me at the cross? That's what I would ask an Arminian. Did he really redeem me? If he did, why do I have to do anything? Did he reconcile me? Did he make me in, bring, be brought into his family? Did he propitiate his wrath against me on the cross? Then I can't experience that wrath ever again, can I? That's why the Arminians believe in losing salvation. Do you see why that has to be worked into? Because, yeah, I, I trusted in him, but I can untrust him. I can go back on him. I can, I can now uh, go my own way. But in true Christianity, that's not the case. And that's why most of your Baptists who have trouble with that L word definitely be, believe in perseverance. And they have to believe in election because the election ter- term is there. The word is all throughout Scripture. You cannot take that away. But many Baptists, ever since the basically the early 1900s, by the 1930s, 40s, 50s, it had changed drastically. I came from a Baptist background. I look back at some of the people, um, Herschel Hobbes, some other people who did not believe in this atonement that we're talking about. That was very serious. And that's where things really changed in the Baptist church. But up until that time, many Baptists believe what we believe here. In Revelation 5, 9 through 10, I'm just about at the end here. Thank you for bearing with me all this doctrine. Am I forgiven? You guys like doctrine? Amen. All right. Because you see how it applies? It means a lot to me because I don't have to worry ever again about my salvation because he's already bought and paid. But if he didn't buy and pay for me, he did, but, but I can get out of it, I am a man most to be pitied because he can't die on the cross for me again. Okay. Uh, Revelation 5, 9-10, I love this. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And you were, look at this, you were slain. Tense. And have redeemed us. Past tense. To God by your blood. They're praising Jesus here. You, you, you were slain. You bought us. Out of, look at this, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There's your all the world. That satisfies that answer, doesn't it? There's all. He died for all. Yeah, he did. Jew, Gentile, different people from all over the world, different nations. Out of every tribe, he paid for. And look at this, have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. There's your future tense. We're going to reign one of these days with him in in glory. Uh, You know, there was a real purchase of men at the cross. The Arminian says, well, it was only as good as what we can do. Many other passages showed that we cannot. 
We will not do that. We don't have the power to do that. In Ephesians 2, it says that we are dead in our trespasses. What do you do with that? Well, they have great problems, and they'll go back to John 3.16. They've got problems with that, because in John 3, you have the wind blows where it wants. Okay. Real penal substitution happened at the cross for the purchase of men. There was a transaction at the time of his death. It was real. It happened. Revelation 5 here identifies that you were slain. It was done that. And you redeemed us. A redemption of certain men in particular and not all men in general. That's why there were the general Baptists back in the 1600s. You know how long they lasted? A few decades. They got up to about 100 people in about six different churches around the England area. They fizzled out. They went into universalism. Does that make sense? You eventually will go to universalism. Um, they went to deism. And, of course, we had a lot of deists who actually founded our country. They believe that God wound up the clock, stepped back and said, it's up to you. He does not intervene into that. And that's where, really, it, it died out, the general Baptists. They later cropped up about 100 years later. And then... You have the story, the rest of that. But it's effectual. It's effectual. He says we will reign on earth. 2 Corinthians 5.14, along with substitution here, is representation. 2 Corinthians 5.14. And I'm just about to close this down. I'm right at the end. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And He died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. He died. What happened to us? We died. Somehow, mysteriously, we died with Him, although we were born 2,000 years later. It was just like we, uh, Adam represented us whenever he sinned. The second Adam comes along and he represents us who are His. And He dies for us there. So the idea of substitution, you have the idea of representation. If Christ died for someone, that person died on the cross, and how can they die again for their sins? That's where it happened. Romans 6, verse 4. You guys are probably familiar with that. It's used as an illustration for baptism a lot. Um, Verse 4, Therefore we were buried with Him. Oh, verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The other verse was 2 Corinthians 5.14 where He says He died for all. Who are those all? Well, look at the context. And he's, he's talking to believers. The believers are the all. Uh, man, you should have gone to the circus. All were there. All in Jeff City were there. You can use that language too, if you want uh, to, use, to use that. And sometimes that happened. And, and in Jerusalem, uh, that, that was known. Um, Matthew 2 3, I think it is. All of Jerusalem came out. Does that mean everybody? When he heard, uh, when Herod the king heard this about the star in the east, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Did everybody? You talking about every individual? Making a blanket statement there. Chapter three, verse five, Matthew. 
Then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Does that mean um, everybody, even the religious people, even the Pharisees and Sadducees and all the people who were disbelieving in him, which we know most in Israel did not believe in him. But he says all Judea. It means a lot of people were coming out there. That's the idea of all. So when people use that, you know what to come back with. Um, General redemption has a problem, doesn't it? Newness of life. Who has newness of life? The ones who died with him. Who died with him? Will all be saved? No. John six thirty seven through forty. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. No one comes to me, I'll by no means cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me that all of all He has given me, did you catch that? Of all that He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up the last day. Perseverance. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him, there's the belief, which is a gift, may have everlasting life, I'll raise him up the last day. Look at verse 44. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Can't go to him on your own. We know that. Read that many times. John 10, verse 14 and 15. This is just through the book of John. We're talking about this. John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own as the Father knows me. Even so, I know the Father and I lay my down life down for the... Sheep? How about for the goats? Like in Matthew 25. Did he lay his life down for the goats? The sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, who are they? The Gentiles. As the gospel will start going out to them. Uh, so this I must bring. They'll hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Um, so John 10, I think, is very explanatory. Verse 26 in John 10. Uh, but you... Do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Wow. Does that ever hit it hard? He was speaking to some of those religious people in the opposition, and he said, you are not of my sheep. So he had sheep. Others weren't. John 17, 9. And I'm going to make this the last one, okay? I'm sorry. John 17, 9. This is his prayer for his people. Uh, this is Jesus, folks, praying. His great priestly prayer. 17.9 I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 6, whom you have given me. Verse 7, which you have given me. The apostles, and later on, all the way down through the church, His chosen ones. Here, Christ limits the sphere of His intercession. He's only going to pray for the ones that the Father Gives him. He limits his intercession on the night before the atonement happens. Is that incredible? He was limiting it right there to just the ones. If he doesn't intercede for those that are not given to him, is it conceivable he would die for them that he didn't pray for? Atonement does more than merely make possible the salvation, and that's what Arminians are saying. And that's what I always ask. Does it make it possible? Or does it actually accomplish it? If He gave His Son to die for us, He will certainly give us all the things. There's an effectual calling. There's a perseverance of the saints. Particular redemption 
greatly glorifies God. How can I put this into my life? It makes you want to shout to God. It teaches us that Christ's death without any addition from mankind, Reformation, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, grace alone, glory alone, all of those, that means nothing else has to be added to what He did. Ah, but I must believe. Yeah, you do, but He gives you that. I must repent. Yes, He gives you that. My assurance is simply this. Jesus died for 